Good evening. Can I have uh, everyone turn with me to the uh, book of James, chapter 4? And we keep doing this to this study. We have a study, then we're off a few weeks. Have a study, and then something comes up, and we're off a few weeks, all right? But in case you're wondering, we had a great time in uh, Phoenix visiting my son and his daughter-in-law. My, my son and his wife, my daughter-in-law. I get it. Uh, and, our, and our grandkids, so it was a great time. So we are in chapter 4. I'd like to back up just a little bit. Now let me just uh, say this. As we've been studying the epistle of James, we understand he's emphasizing the importance of Christian maturity. Uh, maturity in the Christian life is all about becoming more and more godlike, uh, godly, but the idea is godlike, and that means drawing closer and closer to God every day. So the Holy Spirit can transform us into his image. And I'm thinking primarily into the image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul said that's the goal of the Christian life, that we are transformed more and more into Christ's image. And that happens the, the closer we get to him. A.W. Tozer stated this profoundly in a book he entitled, Nearness is Likeness. Very true. Nearness to God is likeness with God. However, the thing that separates us from God, right, I mean... If becoming godly, godlike is the goal. Uh, that's what Christian maturity is all about. And uh, to become more and more godly, we have to draw closer and closer to God every day. Of course, the devil doesn't want us to do that. He wants to uh, bring uh, temptation. He wants us to stumble. He wants to keep us away from the Lord. But the thing that separates us from God and keeps us from drawing close to him, of course, is sin. We know that from Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. God said, My hand is not short that I cannot save. Neither is my ear heavy that I cannot hear, but your sins have separated me, uh, you from me. So sin separates us from God. And the only remedy for sin on our part is repentance. And so this now becomes James' focus in chapter 4, starting with verse 7. In fact, from verses 7 through 10. Let's read them where he said, and we've kind of looked at these already, but again, I want to back up. To verse 7 and I'll show you why in a moment where James says therefore submit to God resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double-minded lament and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up if repentance is what all of us need, if we are involved in sin or we have sinned, if the goal is to draw close to God and sin has separated us from God, I'm talking about on the practical level now. We're Christians, all right? But even as Christians, of course, we still sin. And when we do, our fellowship with God is broken. And that's where the devil wants to keep us. But we want, hopefully, to get back with God. We want to keep or start drawing close to him again. And the... Um, only way that's possible is through repentance. Now, James's whole focus is Christian maturity, as we just said. All right, He understands because he's talking to a group of people he knew, and a lot of them weren't doing so well. No doubt they were messing with the world and they were kind of compromising. And he knew if he's going to teach them on Christian maturity and encourage them to go in that direction, the sin has got to be dealt with. And so in these four verses, there are ten commands in the Greek. Ten commands that are all essential elements of true repentance. First of all, he said in verse 7, beginning part, submit to God. The word submit in the Greek is a military term, which in this context means to place yourself totally under God's authority and to obey his every command. Listen, whereas sin is rebellion against God, submission is just the opposite. And listen to me. Submission is the motivation behind repentance, where you come to a point where you're tired of walking away from God. Maybe this is before you got saved, and you repented in the beginning that brought you to Christ. Or you're a Christian, and you've kind of drifted, you've wandered away, maybe gotten back into some of the old sins. But the Holy Spirit's been working. He's been working in your heart, and now you've come to a point where you say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of going where I'm going. I want to get back with God. Well, the idea is I want to get back into obedience with God. So that's 
desire for submission becomes the motivation behind repentance. So the word repentance, as we all know, is a word that means to turn around, turn around from rebellion and disobedience, and to begin moving toward God in the sense of wanting to submit to him and obey what he has commanded. But notice James couples the positive submit to God with another negative command, resist the devil. Resist the devil at the end of verse 7. The word resist is a Greek word that literally means take a stand against. Take a stand against. This means that we are to practically take a stand against the devil's temptation. He wants to get us away from God. He wants us in sin. Okay, He doesn't want us godly, godlike, because then we're a witness. We're a light. He doesn't want us. He's lost us. I mean, I'm of the firm belief, once you're saved, truly saved, you're always saved. Okay? So he's lost us. But he doesn't want us touching anybody else. See? So he wants to get us to stumble, get us in sin, and so on. And uh, he's tempting us all the time. In fact, we live in a culture that everywhere you look, there's temptation. Right? And everything we see is, appeals to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Right? And it's all the God of this world. Satan is, is, is using all the, these things to just draw us away from God as Christians. But uh, we are to resist him. That's our responsibility. Now, the power to resist comes from God. The will to exist, that's us. Okay? That's us. We have to desire to resist the devil because we want to walk with God in fellowship. And so when James says resist the devil, he's just basically saying take a stand against the temptation. Don't just give in to it. Fight it. This means to close our ears to the junk of the world. And, and let's be honest, the devil is using uh, various sounds to really stumble people. And I'm thinking of music in particular. I mean, the devil is preaching his agenda through music all the time. Now, all of us here, we're Christians and we listen to hopefully godly stuff. But this young generation, they have been indoctrinated by the music they're listening to. They don't even realize it. Music is a very power. When you put words to music, it is a very powerful medium to influence and to um, indoctrinate. Okay, so you know, but it gets into the area of gossip too, and other areas that we the devil stumbles us through our hearing. But we're to close our ears and our hearts to the devil's temptation. That's our responsibility. But it also means to keep our eyes from evil. Remember what David purposed in his heart, Psalm one hundred one. He said, I purposed in my heart that I'm going to walk within my house with a perfect heart. I'm not going to set anything unclean before my eyes. Guys, we can all put on the facade in public. But what you are in private is what you really are. And it starts with what you're looking at uh, in TV, movies, the Internet. That's a very, again, very powerful way. Images, uh, music and images are very powerful. Now, what has Satan done? He's combined the two. MTV and music videos. Wow, this young generation doesn't stand a chance unless they're in the Word of God, saved, filled with the Spirit. Otherwise, they're just being taken captive by the devil all over the place. But um, <clears throat> James promises us, if we resist the devil in the power of the Spirit, no doubt, he will flee from us. He will flee from us. Then he talks in verse 8, beginning part, the third command. He says, then draw near to God. I mean, once rebellion has been replaced with submission and temptation is being properly resisted, listen, it now becomes our responsibility to actively draw near to God every day. The idea is fellowship, communion. We draw near to God in several ways. These are obvious through prayer, praise, uh, staying in the Word, uh, remaining in fellowship with the body of Christ keeps us accountable. We, we, we feed off of each other in a sense. We, we strengthen one another. Uh, when I'm a little down and I talk to you and you're just so filled with the Spirit at that time and you're telling me what God's doing, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. I want you, God. I need to get right back with God. I need to, you know, that kind of thing. We encourage each other, okay? Spurgeon considered a few ways in response to the question, what does it mean to draw near to God? He said, and again, these are simple, straightforward. It means to draw near in worship, praise, and in prayer. It means to draw near by asking counsel of God. When we rely on God, 
day by day, but moment by moment even, okay, uh, to lead our lives. It keeps us close to Him. Spurgeon said it means to draw nearer in enjoying communion with God. That private time, we're just singing worship to Him or uh, meditating on His goodness and all. And he said it means to draw near in general, in the general course and tenor of your life. So just overall, in the general pattern of your life, that you bring God into everything, that you go through your day realizing God is with you, and throughout your day you're talking to the Lord, asking for guidance, strength, whatever it is. When you bring Jesus into your daily life that way, you will remain close, you will draw close to God. And as James promised us through the Holy Spirit, as we draw near to God, God promises to draw near to us, which is really his heart's desire, okay? One writer put it this way, said, and I quote, This also shows what God wants to do for the sinner. It doesn't say, draw near to God and he will save you, or draw near to God and he will forgive you, though both of those are true. But what God really wants is to be near us, to have a close relationship and fellowship with the individual, end quote. That's what he really wants. I remember years ago, a Bible teacher I was listening to said, you know, what can you give God that he really needs? Nothing. Well, what can you give him that he really wants? Well, the only thing that he really wants after we're saved is our fellowship. That we come to him and we commune with him and we tell him we love him and appreciate him. And it's so simple, so basic. And yet, you know, we lose sight of that. You know, we lose, we think because God is God, what can I give to God that he really wants? Well, he wants our love. He wants our attention. He wants our fellowship. This is quite a bit different from the old covenant, isn't it? Remember we were studying Exodus, and we were in Exodus 19, and Moses up on top of Mount Sinai getting the law from God. The law represented the terms of the, of the old covenant, the, you know, the Mosaic covenant and all. And remember what God said to Moses before he came up to the mountain. He said, you tell the people they're not to draw close to the mountain. Stay away. Uh, if they if they touch the mountain in any way, they'll be struck dead. They are not worthy under the old covenant to draw near to me, because sin had separated them from God. Uh, that separation was like, that's why he established the priesthood, by the way, because the people were not worthy to come directly to God. They needed a mediator, a go-between, because of their sin. The old covenant didn't deal do away with sin. It covered it temporarily until the next sacrifice could be made for sin but it never really took sin away until jesus came the lamb of god who took away the sin of the world through his blood establishing the new covenant but it's just interesting how that the uh, new covenant is so opposite the old covenant isn't it uh, the new covenant beckons us to draw near to god in fact it gets so close that we understand he's our daddy abba father papa okay a term used by young children uh, a young child is always welcome to go into their father's presence, to come to their father. The old covenant says stay away. The new covenant says come near. Remember we studied Hebrews? Uh, we got to chapter 10, and the writer made this very clear. Let me read it to you out of the uh, NLT. Hebrews 10, verse 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter uh, heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus, the holy of holies which in the Old Covenant, only the high priest could enter into, and then only once a year after many sacrifices, many washings. But when Jesus died on the cross, before he died, he said, it is finished, bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. At that instant, the veil was torn from top to bottom that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And God was saying, open house. Because of the blood of my son, you're all a kingdom of priests. You all can come directly into my presence. Your sins have been dealt with. They've been paid for. So we, we can all come boldly into the most holy place through the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. But listen to me. Continued fellowship and communion with God requires, listen, practical holiness day by day. 
Which brings us to the fourth and fifth commands regarding true repentance. He said at the end of verse 8, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Both cleanse and purify are verbs that refer to ceremonial cleansing, something that Jewish converts would have associated readily with uh, repentance and communion with God. You remember that, as we have studied this, that when a Jew, uh, in James' day, when a Jew would enter into the temple area, uh, he was there to offer a sacrifice or to worship God, basically to have fellowship with God. Before they could approach God, they would first have to bathe in a ritual cleansing pool or bath known as a mikvah. And these were just uh, you know, little pools carved out of the limestone filled with water that had steps that went down into them. And the idea was in the Jewish mind, before you had fellowship with God, before you could approach God, your sins had to be washed away. You had to approach God in purity. And so they represented that with uh, an outward ritual cleansing. Now, it reminds us of the ministry of John the Baptist, who, listen, baptized people before they could have fellowship with Messiah. Remember that? A lot of people think of John's baptism as Christian baptism. John's baptism was not a Christian baptism because Christian baptism comes after salvation. John's was more of a ritual cleansing using the Jordan River as a mikvah, basically. And the idea was that this was how the Jews repented. All right. Yes, they outwardly washed away some you know, dirt from the flesh, but they realized it was only symbolic. Uh, what they were doing was they were repenting of their sins in preparation for having fellowship with uh, the Lord, with the Lord God Almighty. And so John's ministry was to prepare the hearts of the Jewish people, but there were Gentiles also that came to John to be baptized. But it was all a kind of a ritual cleansing to prepare them to receive Messiah, who John was the forerunner of. And when Jesus showed up, then the idea was their hearts had been sufficiently cleansed that they were now ready to receive Messiah, have fellowship with him, and so on. We don't actually go through the ritual of going into a bath and washing ourselves. We just repent, don't we? We just, we just repent in our hearts of our sins before we get saved or we have fellowship with the Lord and so on. But the idea behind the necessity to cleanse our hands, which means to make holy the outward actions of our lives, and to purify our heart, which again was to make holy the inward desires of our hearts. Listen, it spoke of practical holiness, which is essential. We're going to have ongoing fellowship with the Lord. Even as David said in Psalm 24, he said, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Now, David built his palace on Mount Moriah, but down a little bit from the top. Then he had to walk up the remaining bit of the ascent, to the top of Mount Moriah, where the tabernacle was. And uh, David, is, when he says, who may ascend to the, to the hill of the Lord, he's talking about who may go up to the tabernacle to have fellowship with the Lord. And he answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. We have to have pure heart before we can have fellowship with God. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure in heart? We've talked about this. The Greek word for pure is katharos, and it has two basic meanings in the Greek, clean and unmixed. In fact, it's the uh, Greek word we get the English word cathartic from, cathartic. Now, we know that a medical doctor will um, give medicine to some people to cleanse their systems physically. It's a, it's a medicine that will work a physical catharsis, okay? But we also speak of, of catharsis on an emotional level. Uh, when a person has been, you know, cleansed of bitterness, anger, other destructive emotions, okay, they've been cleansed of these things. It's a catharsis, okay? Usually uh, when a person grieves and weeps, the, the tears have a way of bringing about a, somewhat of a catharsis, okay? A, emotional, on an emotional level. But there's also a spiritual catharsis. That's what the Bible is talking about. 
which is the cleansing of the inner man or the heart, making the heart pure, okay? We remember in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, Peter was talking to the, um, it was the first uh, church council, Acts 15, and uh, they had heard that, the church had heard that Peter went into Gentile home, okay? Now, if you're a Jew, that was a big deal. You weren't supposed to go into a Gentile house. You were defiled. But God was doing a new thing, right? And God showed Peter through a vision that he was bringing Jew and Gentile together. Now, the Gentiles were no longer unclean, and there were no longer any unclean animals. And God was going to make from the two one new man in Christ, the church, right? So after God shows Peter this in a vision, then he has leads Peter as a knock on the door because he was at the house of Simon the Tanner on the roof waiting for lunch to be prepared, has this vision. And then uh, the Holy Spirit says to him, Peter, there's going to be some men at the door. Go with them and don't ask any questions. And so knock on the door. Here's two or three guys that... Uh, a centurion named Cornelius had sent because the Lord had spoken to him about sending these these men to servants to get Peter told him where he was so Peter goes with him goes into the house of Cornelius and uh, and witnesses to him gives him the gospel and they all get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit well it gets back to the early church which is Jewish primarily that Peter one of the leaders of the church had gone into a Gentile house and they were kind of taken back so they quickly called the council and and, and asked peter about it and peter explained the whole story he said in verse 9 he said you know i gave them the gospel and they received christ and god purified their hearts by faith that was a salvation cleansing okay where they were now saved they were defiled by sin but now they were pure in christ but another one that we know very well is first john 1 verse 7 where John said, but if we, talking about the church now, Christians, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And this is this ongoing uh, holiness, okay, that if we do sin, we confess it, the blood of Christ washes us clean again as we stay close to the Lord and to the body of Christ uh, we stay in a fellowship with the Lord. So it's talking about practical, ongoing holiness. So, guys, first of all, pure in heart means a heart cleansed of sin through the blood of Christ. But the Greek word for pure also had another meaning. It meant unmixed or undiluted. The Greek word for pure could also mean unmixed or undiluted. We've talked about this. For example, gold is pure when all the dross has been removed. At that point, it is cleansed of dross. It is no longer diluted with dross and is now pure. Wheat that has been separated from the chaff is pure wheat. It is unmixed with chaff. And the basic idea here is a heart that is completely, listen, completely devoted to God and not diluted with a love for the world, which the Bible calls having a divided heart. A divided heart. Part of you loves the Lord, part of you loves the world. You got one foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the world. You're not in a good place. God desires for us, yes, to be saved, but not just to be saved. He wants us to be totally committed to him. He doesn't want to have to compete with any other loves in our hearts. And I'm not saying we can't love our families and our spouse and our kids. That's not, We're talking about a love that... Um, where you're, you're the servant, you're the slave to someone. We can only be the slaves of one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can love a lot of people. We are committed to love people. But we can only be the slaves of one master, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, God wants, let me just say this. When God cleanses a sinner and makes them his child, uh, he or she is made pure in heart in the sense that their sins have been washed away. That's true. But again, now that they've received a new heart, which is really what goes on. We talk about our sins being cleansed. Well, that's true. But God doesn't even fix our old fallen heart. He just replaces it, doesn't he? Gives us a new one, okay? Created me a clean heart, David said. But in the new covenant, well, we receive a new heart, a heart transplant. God essentially transplants his heart within us. We now have godly desires, godly ambitions. We want to glorify the Lord and so on. So it's really a new heart. But God also wants a person 
to be pure in heart from the standpoint that God and God alone is our first love, that uh, to him belongs all our loyalty, all our devotion, complete devotion. Uh, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24? He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is money. But we could generalize it and say you can't serve God and self. You can't serve God and the world. We can only be slaves of one person or one thing. And uh, we are to be slaves of Christ, right? That's why the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon said in chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Keep your heart pure. Okay? You know, we talk about Solomon, and um, Solomon started off so well for the Lord. I mean, we remember how he started off, and God uh, called him as a young man, probably a teenager, to be the king of Israel. And uh, he was overwhelmed uh, at that calling. He was very much, you know, uh, thinking that he wasn't capable he wasn't worthy and uh, so one day after he uh, led the nation in worship and many sacrifices animal sacrifices were made to god he goes home and uh and has a dream that night where the lord appears to him and says solomon ask me whatever you want and i will give it to you and solomon said well lord i'm a young man what do i know about being a king I don't know how to come come in, go out. Um, these are, are your people. This is a great people. I need wisdom so I can be a good king, uh, a wise and fair and um, uh, equitable leader. In the speech, it says, please the Lord. And God says, Solomon, because you didn't ask for riches or long life or the life of your enemies, but you asked for wisdom to be a better leader to my people. Not only will I give you the wisdom, I will also give you the other things, wealth, long life and the lives of your enemies so solomon starts out good right but somewhere along the line solomon's heart began to grow kind of cold you know david said the only thing i want in life is to be in the presence of god to dwell in the house of the lord forever to forever behold the beauty of the lord david had a heart of worship solomon was more practical david wrote wrote psalms of worship solomon wrote proverbs to men those are important, but if we had to choose one over the other, so much better to worship God than to have wisdom you know, in life. But somewhere along the line, Solomon's heart kind of began to cool. In fact, we read that his heart was not loyal to the Lord as God. The Hebrew word means it was not completely given over to God. In other words, Solomon at one point began to have a divided heart. He loved God, but he also loved the world um, he thought that the world still held some things that he valued that would bring him happiness. And that led to a very long, kind of a circuitous detour in Solomon's life, where he kind of began to pursue happiness in all kinds of different things, building things and uh, pleasure and uh, starting a business. And, uh, you know, he just... You read about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. All the things he pursued looking for happiness, all coming to the conclusion it was all emptiness and vanity. Until he finally comes to the end of his life, he comes back to God, and he basically says, look, I should have listened to my dad when I was a young man. He told me, Solomon, if you draw close to God and love him with a willing mind, loyal heart, he will always be with you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And so Solomon finally comes back and realizes, you know what? All my life, I've pretty much had a divided heart. I thought the world had things I wanted. I've come to realize the world is nothing I want. There's no happiness under the sun. All our happiness is found in the sun, S-O-N, right? Or above the earth, looking at, from, at life from heaven's perspective. But Solomon, his heart became diluted. It became mixed. And God doesn't want that. He wants our hearts to remain totally given over to him. And that's why Solomon be, would eventually write, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Look, a pure heart will produce a changed life, a life of devotion to God. Now, look, we can all wander, we can all drift, we can all, and, and I've heard people say this to me over the years, people that were on fire for a while, 
and really were going for it and their ministry was being blessed and they were on fire for the Lord. And at some point they kind of, I don't know what happened. You tell me, all right? We, we start to, the devil is very patient and he'll just whittle away a little bit at a time. We don't even realize it. All of a sudden, maybe just a little compromise here and there. And pretty soon it leads to bigger areas of compromise. We're not going to Bible study every week. Uh, we're missing Bible study here and there. And then maybe on a regular basis. Then Sunday morning gets affected. And we're not hanging out with the saints like we used to. Sometimes we, we, people get back with the old friends. That's a disaster. And they said to me, you know, when we've talked about this or they've heard me teach this in a message, they, you know, they would say to me, you know, there was a time when I did keep my heart with all diligence. There was a time when my heart was pure. I was diligent to keep it from being mixed with the world. I was so on fire for the Lord. I was so sold out. What has happened to me? Well, you got to keep your heart with all diligence every day. Every day is a new day. Just because we have victory yesterday and we walk with God closely yesterday, those things can't carry over to today. We have to start anew every single day. A fresh purpose, a fresh commitment. Lay ourselves on the altar every day afresh. Say, Lord, here am I, take me. The best defense against sliding away from the Lord is a good, strong offense. Keep walking closely with him and keep moving Keep moving forward. You never slide backwards. But they say, you know, I don't know what has happened to me. You know, we've been studying the life of David on Sunday mornings in the book of 2 Samuel. That was David's testimony to a large degree. You know, started off, God chose him to be king over Saul. By saying to David, he was a man after my own heart. And David was really on fire for the Lord, really committed to the Lord. I think prosperity was David's downfall. I think success, when he was running for his life from Saul, hiding in caves, having to depend on God every single day to protect him, watch over him, provide for him, he was strong. One of the worst things that can happen to us is where we become financially independent. Remember what God told Israel before he led them into the promised land? He said, now look, when I bring you into this good land that I promised you, a well-watered land flowing with milk and honey, and you live in those houses that you didn't build, because they were going to take over the Canaanites. You know, they're going to take over their stuff. When you live in those houses you didn't build, you drink from those wells you didn't have to dig. You eat from the vineyards that you didn't plant. When you are prosperous, be careful because that's the most dangerous time in your life be careful you don't forget about me and be careful you don't think that your strength and ingenuity whatever has gained you this wealth i have given you the power to get wealth don't forget me but israel did and god eventually had to uh, judge them he brought them down but David kind of does the same thing. Prosperity got a hold of him, built himself a new palace, kicking back. I don't want to go to war anymore. I'm tired, 55 years old, rough, roughly around there. Joab, you take the guys, you go to battle. I'm going to stay here and join my new palace. And as we have studied, it was his downfall. Had a lot of free time on his hands, a lot of idle time. Idleness is the devil's workshop. You know, taking a walk on his roof of his palace. One evening, sees Bathsheba bathing, and you remember the story. But God loved David, even though David fell. And for a man after God's own heart to fall like that, that was not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba, he actually plotted to have her husband Uriah killed. I mean, this was a, you know, you talk about, there, there is no two grosser sins that a man or woman of God, of God could commit than those two. Yet God loved David. And God forgave David. And David wrote in Psalm 51, in fact, why don't you turn there? You all know it. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. David is crying out for forgiveness, but God responds and he restores David. But initially he said in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Well, that applies to everybody, every Christian who has backslidden. This is what we need to have our heart cleansed, purified again, a catharsis spiritually. How is that, is that accomplished? Very simply through confession and repentance. Remember what John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, again, spiritual catharsis, from all unrighteousness. Now look, the need for cleansing is clear here in James from the way he addressed his readers. He said, you sinners, you know, you double-minded. The word for sinner there in the Greek is a strong word, and it means a hardened sinner, a person whose sin is, listen, obvious and even notorious. At this point, guys, let me just stop and say this. There are those commentators who see in what James is saying in these verses, 7 to 10, is not being directed at backslidden Christians calling them to get right, but to religious unbelievers calling them to get saved. And if that's true, then all these verses could be in the same context going all the way back to verse 4, where we read, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we studied that verse. We said that is not the language that is ever used of a believer. And we know that James is writing to people that he knows are not saved, some of them. So he gets hard on them. Look, he's, he's making a gigantic contrast here. Either you're a friend of God, saved, or you're an enemy of God, an unbeliever. And so it could be, and I don't know for sure, but it could be that everything from verse 4 through verse 10 could be in the same context. It's all being directed at unbelievers. But even if that is true, in the overall context of repentance and maturity, whether we're talking about an overt sinner getting saved or a backslidden Christian getting right, the same principles apply. Repentance is repentance. He said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, verse 8. The Greek word for double-minded refers to a waverer. Somebody who wavers, unstable, an unstable person. I pulled this definition from one Greek scholar, because I have some Greek uh, books on my computer. And this one particular Greek scholar defined it this way. He said, and I quote, Such a person suffers from divided loyalties. On the one hand, he wishes to maintain a religious confession and desires the presence of God in his life. On the other hand, he loves the ways of the world and prefers to live according to its mores and ethics, end quote. He is an unstable person. He, no, he or she doesn't know which way they want to go. Sometimes they want to walk with God. Sometimes they like to be in the world. They're unstable. In fact, this harkens back to what James said in chapter 1. Chapter 1, starting with verse 8. Remember what he said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask God in faith for that wisdom, right? Without doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a, listen, a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Look, the term double-minded in the Greek literally means two-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D, two-souled. One writer put it this way. He said, and I quote, The man of two souls, who has one for the earth and another for heaven, who wishes to secure both worlds, he will not give up earth, and he is loath to let heaven go, end quote. In other words, he's caught between two worlds. It's Israel in the wilderness, isn't it? Delivered from Egypt, but not yet possessing the promised land. There's a lot of Christians who are stuck between Egypt and Canaan, all right? They've, they're saved, but they're still in that, their wilderness. Why? Well, what was the wilderness characterized by? Murmuring, complaining, not trusting God. That's what happens. They're carnal. And if a person is a carnal believer and refuses to grow up, repent, and so on, they're going to be trapped in the wilderness like Israel was, what, for 40 years? In fact, a lot of those, there were only two adults that entered into the wilderness that made it into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. The rest who were over 20 died in the wilderness. They, 40 years, they wandered and they all died out. Their kids went in. But I always think about that and how that relates to our, so many Christians who are delivered and yet never really learn to trust God. Always murmuring, always complaining, wanting, always looking back to the world, like Israel did with Egypt. 
Oh, we had such great things in Egypt. We had the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Are you kidding? Condiments? You want to go back to Egypt for condiments? This is your whole deal? You get the promised land in front of you. You want to go back to the world? But there are Christians like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. If you're, going to go, if you're going to become a Christian, go for it. Right? Go for it. Because to me, the wilderness is the most miserable place to be in as a believer. You got too much of the Lord in you to be comfortable in the world anymore. Too much of the world in you to be comfortable around spirit-filled Christians. So there you are stuck in a kind of a limbo. Miserable place to be in, right? God wants us to live wisely. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to stop trying to serve two masters. Christian maturity is all about being single-souled. It's all about making a full commitment to God and uh, his will for your life because God can't bless anything less. Any Christian who decides they want to live for the world and God, well, they're only going to know instability and anxiety in their Christian life, and they will know it until they stop being double-minded and begin to walk with him with a full and fully devoted heart. You remember with Joshua, I don't have to read it to you, you know it, Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua says to the people of Israel, he challenges them. He said, look, you know, a lot of you folks have gotten into idolatry, you're worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. What is that all about? He says, look, if you're going to do that, go, don't play games, though. If you're going to worship the gods of the Canaanites, then do it. But don't, you know, worship them and give God lip service. That's hypocrisy. He said, look, if you want to worship these gods that you've, you know, of the people that you've possessed their land, then you do it. If you're going to worship the God of Israel, then you do that with all your heart. As for me and my house, I know what we're doing. We're going to serve the Lord. His leaders were always trying to challenge people to make a full-on commitment. A full-on commitment. Now, in verse 9, James gives us four more commands associated with true repentance and ultimately with Christian maturity, because that's the idea. Uh, they come out of verse 9. The commands are lament, mourn, weep, and let. Okay, let me read it to you. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The first word, lament, literally means be miserable. Okay, be miserable. The idea that James is expressing when he says to his readers that true repentance involves them being miserable is not that they are sad over their circumstances, you know, and they want God to make them happy. They want God to give them nice circumstances. It's not about that. That's not what he's talking about. The idea is that of being broken and miserable over the sin in your life. Sin which has grieved the heart of God and separated you from him in fellowship. It was the kind of misery that Jesus related to a tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Remember that? How Jesus talked about two men went into the temple to pray. One guy was a Pharisee and just basically prayed to himself. God wasn't listening. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I give alms to the poor. I'm a wonderful guy. Blah, blah. You're lucky to have me in your house here and you know that kind of thing and there was a tax collector in the back of the room and he, he was so mortified over his sin and so broken so miserable over his sin he wouldn't even look lift his head toward heaven but beat on his breast and said god be merciful to me a sinner jesus i tell you a truth that man the tax collector went, went away justified not the pharisee because everyone who humbles himself will be exalted those who exalt themselves will be humbled. This is what God is looking for. He's looking for a broken and contrite spirit, which he says through the prophet Isaiah, when, when somebody exhibits that kind of a spirit, humble, broken, contrite, I will never turn my ear away from the prayers of that person. The next one is mourn. Mourn. Guys, brokenness, misery over sin will always produce mourning because of that sin. And is always a prelude to true repentance and restored fellowship with God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 4? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When the Holy Spirit's working, and he's convicting you of your sin, the more that happens, the more you begin to mourn. Now, that is always a good place to be in. Because it says God is working, your heart is still tender enough to receive it, and it's leading you to true repentance. It's the hard-hearted person that 
has so hardened their hearts through justifying their sin or excusing themselves, they've basically seared their conscience as with a hot iron. And God is working. The Spirit is trying to convict, but there's no their, their conscience is insensate. Like skin is insensate when it's been burned badly and heals, but the nerve endings have been destroyed. You can touch it, but you can't. There's no sensation. So a lot of people through continued sin have burned their consciences as with a hot iron, and the Holy Spirit cannot, he's poking, he's trying to convict, but it's just not going anywhere. If a person is receiving conviction and it's breaking them, making them miserable, they're mourning over their sin, it's always an excellent place to be in. It tells us that you're not too far gone, that there's still hope of you coming back to the Lord. I will have you turn to this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As we're talking about mourning, bringing as, as a prelude to true repentance, listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse, starting with verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Paul had to fire this church off a pretty hard letter. He did it because he loved them. It was pretty harsh, and it really bothered Paul to have to do it, but he had to do it because he loved these folks, and they had to repent. And they received it. Okay, praise the Lord. Their hearts were still soft enough where when they read Paul's letter, it brought conviction and it brought remorse, mourning. And he said, I was, I, I'm not sorry that I, I sent you the letter because it, it brought about repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer uh, loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Some of these folks he was writing to, they weren't saved. They were living in sin. Paul probably knew they weren't saved. So he fires them off, uh, much like James is doing, right? James is saying hard things too, okay? You know, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You adulterers and adulteresses, which he's trying try to get, them, get their attention. Just like Paul did with this letter to the Corinthians. And he says, look, your sorrow was good because it led to repentance. That's always good. But the sorrow of the world, worldly regret, that's not repentance. That's just worldly regret. Yeah, I'm sorry that I did some bad things, but I'm not really sorry enough to change. Paul said that's just a worldly thing. That makes people think something spiritual has happened when it really hasn't. And uh, that is not true repentance. And if a person doesn't actually repent in sincerity and truth, they're going to go to hell. Even though they're full of remorse for all the things they've done wrong in their life. But listen. Once you are made miserable because of your sin and you begin to mourn because of that sin, you then what? The eighth command is you weep. Weep. Weeping is here associated with true repentance. Now, obviously, crocodile tears. That's not what James has in mind. Crocodile tears, of course, are tears that aren't really sincere. Some people are good at turning on the fountain, you know. But God knows the heart, okay? And... Um, James isn't talking about phony tears, crocodile tears. Um, it's not what he has in mind when he commands his readers to repent with weeping. His command to weep is a call to all sinners, not just his readers, but all of us, that people who are living in sin stop taking sin lightly and see it as God sees it. Now, this brings weeping, but some people aren't weepers, okay? doesn't mean everyone's going to cry outwardly. But if they're broken and weeping inwardly over their sin, that's just as good. But I wonder, guys, if when James says this, he had in mind something that God spoke to Israel through the prophet Isaiah many years earlier because of the flippant way they were viewing their sins. Turn to Isaiah 22. I'm going to read this to you out of the New Living Translation. God sent Israel, to, uh, excuse me, Isaiah to Israel at a time when they were really in bad shape spiritually. I'm talking about really involved in sin and wickedness. And you know, continued sin, wickedness, idolatry, and morality, again, will begin to harden a person's heart and make it insensate to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, it got so bad in Israel's day, listen to what happened. All right, it got so bad in Isaiah's day that God sent him to Israel. In verse 12, At that time the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts, called you to weep and mourn over your sin. He sent me to tell you, you need to get broken over your sin. Weep, mourn. He told you to shave your heads in sorrow. That was a sign of, of contrition. 
to shave the head, tear the clothes, to shave your heads in sorrow for your sins, and to wear clothes of burlap so you wanted something uncomfortable to make you miserable, all right? Because uh, you were upset about your sin, you were grieving over your sin, and so on. So put on, you know, shave your head, put on burlap to show your remorse, verse 13. But instead, you dance and play. You slaughter cattle and kill sheep. You feast on meat and drink wine. You say, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of heaven's armies has revealed this to me. Till the day you die, you will never be forgiven for this sin. This is the judgment of the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies. Wow. That is a people that has gotten so hard-hearted. When God says, if you don't repent, I'm going to judge you. Okay, well, tomorrow we're going to die. Let's have a party tonight. Wow. That's pretty hard-hearted, okay? And of course, if James did have these verses in Isaiah in mind when he spoke these words, well, we can understand why then he gave the ninth command with regard to repentance. Verse 9, latter part, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. No doubt thinking of what Israel did when God called them to repentance. Okay, I mean, once again, guys, let me say this. Sin is no laughing matter. And yet that is exactly what Israel did when God commanded them to repent. They laughed and threw a party. They didn't take their sin seriously. So a lot of people in our country who are living in sin, I'm talking about unbelievers now, and when Christians talk to them about sin and the need to repent, they don't take it seriously. They laugh, they joke, um, they go out and party harder. Uh, you know, it's just, they're, they're just, they're, they've gotten so hardened because of sin, it's a big joke. Look, one of Satan's tactics when it comes to sin is to try to lower our resistance to it by getting us to laugh at sin. This, I believe, is the whole idea behind the sitcoms. Okay? I mean, we talk about the God of this world, the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air. I don't think if we said air waves, that would be distorting that scripture. Okay? Satan is the God of this world who is in control of all the media. Pretty much. I mean, there's Christian uh, stations, and we thank God for that. But I'm saying, in general, he controls the publishing houses, uh, Hollywood, radio, and all this, okay? And the idea is that he is um, wanting us to, what's a lower people's resistance to sin, the best way to do it is to get them to laugh at sin. Because when you laugh at something like that, it lowers your resistance. You're not taking it seriously, Okay? The only valid emotion when it comes to our sin is the one Jeremiah described in his book, the book of Lamentations, when he said in chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, the joy of our heart has ceased. Now, Jeremiah wrote Lamentations after the Babylonians had come and carried away Israel into captivity. He had been preaching to them for over 40 years to repent. They didn't repent. Uh, they, were, they were taking sin... You know, taking it lightly. Um, he kept calling them to repentance. He kept weeping. He was the weeping prophet because he knew what was coming. The people were laughing at him. You know, they, they were just enjoying themselves. They didn't think it was a big deal, um, so on and so forth. They even convinced themselves that God was for them. They were God's people. God would never judge us. So after the Babylonians came and wiped out the city, you know, Jerusalem, Jeremiah is sitting on a bluff overlooking the city. He's weeping. He writes this book. He says, the joy of our heart has ceased. Well, if we don't voluntarily start mourning and confessing our sins or repenting, God will force the issue. He will break us one way or another. Either we'll break be a self-brokenness or much more harder if God breaks us with judgment. But Jeremiah, now looking at the land after it's been judged by God, the joy of our heart has ceased. You, you laughing now, Israel? You having a party now? I don't think so. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had this to say about those who laugh at sin. Luke 6.25 Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And the idea is in hell. He also said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh in heaven someday. 
Look, the only proper response to God's conviction is contrition, confession, and repentance, never jokes and laughter. The tenth and final command that James gives us on the subject of repentance is found then in verse 10, where he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Now, earlier in this chapter, in verse 6, he told us, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Guys, the command to humble yourselves comes from a Greek word that means to make low. Humble yourselves, bow down low. Uh, this is in direct opposition to the proud person who stands in the presence of God erect, standing straight, shaking their defiant little fist in the face of Almighty God, basically saying, I'm not going to do what you've said. I don't care what you've said. I'm going to do what I want to do. They, they do this in defiance to all God has commanded. Uh, they refuse to make him their Lord and bow down to his authority in their lives. They're rebels. To humble oneself, to bow low to God speaks of surrender and submission. To him as our sovereign Lord, the one who controls our lives, the one who, that we have submitted our lives to, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are to glorify God now with our bodies and our spirits that belong to him. We are his slaves. It's the very humility that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated to his Father, right? Turn to Philippians 2, talking about humility, how important humility is. Have you ever noticed that humility was not listed among the fruit of the Spirit? You ever notice that? You want to know why? Because as one commentator pointed out, it's the soil from which all the other fruit grows. Pride is the soil that will choke out everything God has done and cause the character and, the, and, and your spirit to wither and die. Humility is the only soil that will allow in your heart, that will allow all the beautiful uh, gifts and uh, fruits of the Spirit to grow in your life. But of course, our supreme example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, starting with verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, listen, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. So those who are humble, who humble themselves, God will lift up. Those who exalt themselves, God, in pride, God will bring down. The Lord Jesus Christ was the epitome of this principle. He humbled himself, became a man, went to the cross, died. Therefore, God has exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In other words, be humbled in submission to his authority of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is telling us that someday every person who has ever lived, every angel who has ever been created, whether faithful or fallen, will someday approach the Lord Jesus Christ while he is seated on his throne and will bow the knee to him, acknowledging him to be the king and ruler over all creation. One pastor put it this way, said, and I quote, Every living thing ever created will someday bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and every tongue will declare that he is Lord, God and Master. That means that dictators like Hitler, Stalin, Putin, Kim Jong-il, uh, Mahmoud Aminajab, uh, I'm a nut job, Mahmoud Aminajab, <laughs> uh, atheists like Voltaire, Bill Maher, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, Religious leaders like Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, and even Satan himself. The difference between those that bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord and go to heaven and those who do this and still go to hell is the timing of when they bow and with what kind of heart they bow with. Those who bow the knee to Jesus now as Lord and Savior, those who humble themselves now and repent while still living on the earth will become children of God. And James promises that someday he will lift them, all believers, up, up to heaven, up to glory for all eternity. Those who wait, though, till they stand before him at the great white throne judgment, they also will bow the knee. They also will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. But instead of being lifted up to heaven, they will be cast out into hell, the lake of fire, for all eternity. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. 
If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Repent, bow yourself low in humility, and give the Lord Jesus Christ control of your life, either in salvation or in submission. Get out of the wilderness, Christian. Get serious. Get into the promised land. And that only is through faith and a willing heart to confess your sins and to go all out for the Lord. That This is what James is basically talking about. Repentance is the key that brings us close to God. That is what we need to become God-like, godly. That's what Christian maturity is all about. That's why it's such an important concept. Not that we have worldly remorse. I feel bad about what I did. Really? Do you want to change? Well, not really. I just kind of feel bad. I ripped that guy off, but I mean, I'm not giving the money back. I'm just kind of feeling a little bad about it. You know, the world, right? God wants true repentance, which is a change rooted in a heart's desire. So, God willing, uh, we will continue on. And um, starting with chapter 4, verse 11, next time, may God continue to bless these studies in his word. Father, we thank you for your word and for your Holy Spirit who gives us illumination, opens our understanding to the things you have placed here. And Lord, I think it's fairly obvious that tonight in these verses at least, the concept of repentance is being hammered home, how important it is, how it's the gateway to uh, intimacy with you and uh, in communion and Christian maturity. Lord, give us grace that we uh, not let anything come between you and us, that our hearts are fully given over to you in love, that you're our first love, our, our only true love. We just, Lord, thank you and pray you work in us, Lord, that we would have pure hearts, undiluted, undefiled, unmixed with anything of this world. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.